0: So we're about to open God's Word together, and at Solid Rock Church, we believe God does supernatural things. Uh, some of those things happen sporadically, and some of those things happen on a consistent basis. And one of the things that we believe God does is that when we open the Bible, His Word, He speaks to us, and that truly is a supernatural thing. We believe that when we open the Bible, we're able to read God's Word and hear His voice as He speaks to us. And so we're going to open now uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the, the book of Thessalonians is tucked right in there in the New Testament. All the T's are together in the New Testament, by the way, just to help, help us out a little bit. First and 2 Thessalonians, first and 2 Timothy, Titus. So if you get to any book today that is in the New Testament, starts with a T, and it's not 1 Thessalonians, go left, and you'll get there, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at, as we continue this sermon series, Even Sinners Such As I, which is a sermon series based on this truth, Jesus came to the world to save sinners, even even bad ones like me, okay? That's another way we could have phrased this, right? Even me. And as we go through this sermon series, we look at how God has rescued us through Jesus. We're also getting a chance to hear from uh, some of our staff and elders as they share their stories with us. And so this morning, you're going to get to hear from Jeff Rathbun, our international uh, missionary pastor, um, but we're gonna start here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 1. And today we're gonna be talking about um, where our boldness to share the gospel comes from. Okay? And we're gonna be looking at Paul, who is a great example to us of what it looks like to live your life boldly for Christ. And he's writing a letter to the Christians. In Thessalonica, and in chapter 2, the first eight or so verses, he talks to them about where his boldness comes from. Now, we think about being involved in ministry, whether you're thinking about serving and volunteering in kids' ministry, or volunteering to be a greeter, or volunteering to do hospitality, or, or maybe teaching, or even preaching, or leading worship. You know, I think there's some, some disconnect oftentimes between our salvation and then this idea that maybe, just maybe, if, if I can show God that I can be good enough, he'll call me to get involved in ministry, not realizing that actually, at salvation, God calls us. And so there's some disconnect that, that I see, and I've even experienced in my own life, between... right. God working in my life, and then this, uh, this hesitation to get involved in him working in other people's lives. I think there are a couple of reasons for that disconnect, and really they're just two sides of the same coin. On one side, there's this, this fear of rejection, right? What will they think about me if I talk about Jesus? What will they think about me? Will they still include me? Will they still accept me if they know I go to church? So There's this fear of rejection of man. But on the other side of the coin, there's this other issue that Paul's is going to address this morning. And that is doubting that you've actually been approved. That God has already approved of you as a minister of the gospel. And so Paul's writing to this church saying, listen guys, here's why I'm so bold. Here's, here's why I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to share the gospel and get, get, engage in ministry. It's got nothing to do with me. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he's saying, listen, guys, you know this already. We came to you, it was after we left Philippi. You remember what happened to us in Philippi, how we were shamefully and brutally treated there and then how we came to you in boldness. And in verse three, he says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to So Paul's saying, listen, our boldness didn't come from selfish motives, selfish games, or or some kind of false gospel. So where did it come from, Paul? Well, let's look a little bit deeper into what happened to Paul in Philippi. So we can just understand what he means that we came to in boldness in much conflict. What do you mean? So in Philippi, if you remember, when Paul and Silas got there, it's recorded in Acts 16... They roll into town, and they do what they normally do when they would roll into a town or a village. They would look for a place where people gathered. Okay, So we do this even in the Philippines today. When we go into a village, we look at like gymnasiums, schools, any kind of public gathering place, because then you can interact with the most number of people. And so Paul and Silas roll into Philippi, and they're looking. They think, hey, let's go to the place of prayer. Surely they've got one here. And when we get there, not only will there be some people there, These might be people who are open to hearing because they're at a place of prayer. So maybe they would be willing to talk about the things of God. So if you know the story in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they, they head down by the water and they're looking for this place of prayer. And they encounter these ladies there praying. One of those ladies is Lydia. Lydia hears the gospel, becomes a believer, shares this gospel with her household. Then her and her whole household are baptized. And then she insists, Paul and Silas, you guys have to stay with me tonight. You guys have to, since you're traveling, why don't y'all stay with me? We'll take care of you. We'll feed you. All is going well so far in Philippi. So, then what happens is Paul and Silas are walking and traveling to the place of prayer as they encounter this this young girl who's actually demon-possessed. And this demon's working through her to talk about people's future in such a way that her owners are making a living off of her, using her as a fortune teller. So Paul and Silas encounter this girl and she begins to speak out in such a way they know this girl's possessed by a demon. So what do they do? They stop. They cast out the demon and then her owners are upset. So when Paul talks about, remember how we we spoke in boldness in the midst of much conflict. He's talking about what happened to them after this demon had been cast out of this young girl. Listen to this in verse 19 of Acts 16. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized, that's arrested, Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So now we begin to realize, oh, that's why they encountered much shame there in Philippi. Look at what happens next. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said... These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, that's not what they were upset about, was it? Really, what, if they would have been truthful, they said, these guys cast a demon out of our little slave girl, and now we can't make any money. That's really what was going on. So they're frustrated, angry, and mad at Paul and Silas. Now, look at what happens. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off, then gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay? So when Paul says that we had suffered and been shamefully treated. Philippi, that's what he's talking about. Now, if we stop here and we think about, wow, how would I react to such a situation, right? I mean, day one, things are going well. Share the gospel with Lydia and her family. They became Christians. They've all been baptized. I would be tempted to look over at Silas and go, hey, man, job well done. We're we're good here, right? Let's just lay low. Let's just, right, let's... Let's appear before the judge. Let's get out of these shackles. Let's head out of this town, right? Not so for Paul and Silas, right? Look at what they're doing in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas, instead of feeling sorry for themselves, right, instead of shrinking back in fear, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Their, their boldness hasn't shrunk or diminished. It's accelerated. It's accelerated. Right? Their feet are shackled, but their souls are not. As they're there in prison in shackles, in this inner jail cell, under Roman guard, and they're worshiping Jesus. And so when Paul says, our coming to you was not in vain, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That's putting it a little lightly, Paul, right? Now, what Paul wants to do is not brag on how bold he was. He wants the church to understand where this boldness comes from, right? He says, listen, it didn't come from anything that was false, a false gospel or false motives. So where did it come from? Verse four. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Now, not a whole lot of words there, but a whole lot of meaning. So it didn't come from a false gospel. It didn't come from false motives. It came from what? This truth that we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now, let's talk for a minute about approval. You and I seek approval in a lot of different ways than we have our entire life. Different people in our lives, maybe your parents, maybe a mom or a dad, or a grandparent, a friend. A lot of us get into middle school and we seek approval, right? Then we become adults and we keep seeking approval. We want to be approved, right? We think about things like applying for a car loan. And There's that, that, that brief moment of angst where you slide the papers across the desk and the salesman says, Thank you, I'll be back in just a moment, right? And your heart's like, oh, I hope I'm approved. Right? And you, even though you, you probably know you got the credit, whatever, you're just still kind of, man, I just hope we get approved. And something feels good when he comes back in and sits down and says, You were approved. <sighs> or maybe bigger than that, like a home loan. Maybe you're making a home purchase and you've got to wait several days before you get approval. And there's this angst you feel, this anxiety of, I hope they approve of us. I hope they trust us to loan us the money so we can get that thing that we want. Now, I share all those examples to say, you know, I, I think I see a little bit of this in the church as well this idea that we're still waiting for approval. That somehow life is like filling out an application and just hoping that in the end, you'll have enough cred with God that you'll get into heaven. That your your moral debt to income ratio will be such that God will say, you know what? You did make a lot of mistakes but you did a lot of good stuff too. And, heart's beating. You're in, right? Now, we know that's not true. But yet so often we will live and function like that as Christians. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, church, you want to know why I'm so bold? It's because I've already been approved. It's past tense. Meaning what? It's already happened. The papers have already been slid back across the desk and stamped approved. Done. We're we're not waiting, hoping to get in. We're in. Now, here's something we've got to take knowledge of. If Paul has already been approved, then his approval wasn't based on something that was yet to happen. It was based on something that had already happened. It was the finished work of Jesus on the cross that earned approval for Paul, and he knew it. There's nothing he did. Now, why do we say the finished work of Christ? Because it's done. It was enough There's nothing we can do to add to it. Paul knew, past tense, it's done. I'm already approved. I'm not hearing Philippi in the jail singing songs to God, hoping that, man, we'll impress him this time, Silas, and surely he'll let us into heaven. Paul's saying, no, 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 my boldness came from this truth. I've already been approved by God. The second thing he says this, is I have been entrusted with the gospel. Now, that word entrusted is really helpful. It's a a Greek word. We find it in the New Testament to describe things that God has given to us that come with a set of expectations from him. And his intent comes with the gift. In other words, um, Paul talks in another place about how we've been entrusted with finances and possessions. They're gifts from God. He's entrusted to us, which means they come with a certain intention. It's not just a free-for-all. God gives me all this stuff. I go do what I want. God says, no, I've entrusted this to you. It actually belongs to me. I'm loaning it to you to use it in a specific way. So a practical example of that would be um, maybe you receive some kind of financial blessing, maybe a refund or a gift comes in the mail or somebody blesses you in some way you weren't expected, right? wasn't on the radar part of the budget, and then all of a sudden you've got this money that you weren't planning on having. So, right? so first response would be, how can I spend this on me? But for the Christ follower who's been entrusted, we take a step back and we ask our Father, why did you give us this? What is this for? Is this to put tires on the car because we need to do that? Or this is, right? And so we ask the question, why have I been entrusted with this? Because you didn't just give me this money for no reason. So that's the word we're talking about here. And what Paul says is, listen, church, we have been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel is the life-changing Precious, valuable, irreplaceable message that Jesus saves sinners. And we've been entrusted with this, church. Now, all throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, he marries together these ideas of being saved and being called. In his letter to the Corinthians, he says, those of us who've been reconciled are now ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. Those of us have been saved are now ministers. Those of us have been saved, we're now missionaries. What God does to us, He wants to do through us. There's no separation between I've been saved, I've been called. Right? I was thinking about this week about um, just some of my own um, team uh, experiences in life. Some of you have played on different sports teams, and and so you know what it's like to be on. You know, A-team, B-team, varsity, junior varsity, that kind of thing. So I played team sports growing up, played a lot of soccer. But really, team sports went to a new level, and maybe you remember this too, in the seventh grade. right? Because this was the age you not only got to play with all your friends for your school, but you got a locker room, you got a weight room. Things went up a notch, right? So I'll never forget the anticipation of seventh grade football. Now, we had played peewee football, but let's be honest. With the name peewee, it's not real, right? We, we put on the helmet pads, but it wasn't real football because why? We didn't have a weight room. We didn't have two-a-days. We didn't right, work out before school, right? And so we didn't really hit hard. So seventh grade was coming, and all my buddies, all of us, we were so excited we are going to play football for the Weatherford Longhorns, seventh-grade team. That's right. So, so now, now keep in mind... The biological clock for young boys oftentimes ticks at a different pace for each young boy, right? So I come into seventh grade um, 115 pounds dripping wet with my backpack on, right? So I'm, I'm a little bit behind physically. I'm not shaving yet, right? I just still look like a little boy. All, all my friends, though, they're starting to beef up. They're lifting weights, and it does something. They're shaving their face, cutting themselves and so in a big school um, the way it works is or at least for me in seventh grade everybody got to play okay so I don't know there's a bunch of us out there on the field doing two day's trying out and we're getting put on different teams and different places and so so what happened is the coaches watch us all out there and they go okay this one that one that one this one that's our a team we've got an a team first string Second string, third string, which means if the first string guy gets tired or injured, you're too deep and you can back him up. Okay? That's our A team. Then we'll put together a B team. So we gather all these kids together and we put together a B team. We've got a B team now. First string, second string, third string, fourth string. And the coaches get together and they go, hmm, we still have kids left over. We're going to have to put together a C team, right? Now, they didn't call it A, B, and C because that would just really be detrimental to our self-esteem, so they called it like the blue team, the white team, the blue-white team, but we knew, right? We knew. We're the C team, and so I kid you not, I was the fifth string C team defensive end for Weatherford Junior High. No joke. And and it's so funny because they give that coaching job to the new guy, and he is not happy he's got to coach the C team with five strings. I mean, they just keep going until you run out of kids, right? And so I'll I'll never forget, though, the day that I got promoted. Never forget this. It was over one play in practice, and so we're backed up to the end zone on the five-yard line, offense is running a play to score okay and I'm on defense I'm a defensive end and they run a they run a play for every string okay first string y'all get in boom run the play second string you're in third string fourth string that's right fifth string get in so I had been watching I knew the play they were going to run and I also knew what not to do because the coach who had to coach us who was angry he had to coach the C team anyway had been yelling at everybody before me so I knew I knew what was expected of me this was a play that the defensive end should be able to make so I know the play and I know the kid running the ball because he's the fifth string running back his name's Richard oh I got you Richard right there I know exactly where you're going and you and I are going to meet right over there and it's game on so we're down defensive end Ball is snapped one step, and I'm like a step ahead of him. He's running this way towards the sideline. I'm running, just waiting for him to turn. He looks up. He sees me and thinks, yeah, that's right. I'm in trouble. He makes his turn. He makes his turn, y'all, and I just dug my head and shoulder. I plow into Richard. I drive him out of bounds across the grass almost to the running track. Hardest hit of my life. Knock my breath out. I get up, I've got grass in my face mask, Richard's crying, my, my, my mouthpiece was out and stuck up here by my eye, my thigh pad was out over here, and I'm limping back, and then Coach, Coach Williams was his name, he goes, yeah, that's how it's done right there, did y'all see that? That's how you make a play, and, I, and then what happened, my chest, chest flipped out, did y'all see that? That's how you make a play, Williams, come here, yes, sir. Coach Williams, you just got promoted. You're now four-string C-team defensive end. Yes, yes, thank you, which meant I was never going to get to play on the real field. (laughs) Never going to get to play. Now, I share that with you because what Paul is getting at here, and and this is over and over again in the New Testament, what he's saying to us as Christians, listen, there is no C-team. There's no B-team, and there's no four-string, in the kingdom of God, there's only 18 team first string, and you're all in. you got to hear that truth. There's only a team first string, and if you're saved, that's you, right? And so many of us are playing the game like we're a C team fourth string. We show up for practice on Sundays. We suit up, right? We clap. We sing. But out there, we don't expect the coach to put us in. Right? We still feel like I'll never measure up. I'll never meet this person's expectations. God still doesn't approve of me. He's just letting me ride the bus to the games. Right? Because he has to. No. Church, listen to me. Men in the room, especially those, who you, those of you who lead households, you're first string. There's no backup for you. There's no B, there's no, there's no B team, no second string. You're it. First String, you've been called to lead your family to know and love Jesus. Ladies, wives, moms, even singles, like you have a role in God's kingdom, and it's A team, first string, and you're it. There's no backup. So many times I hear this, you know, this untrue thing about the ladies, right? Some work and some don't both are mission fields both are actually work right but but bigger than that both are like kingdom mission fields ladies if you've been called to stay home with your kids you are 18 first string for those kiddos if you've been called to work outside the home in your job whatever it's at in your office your cubicle wherever you work you're 18 first string there's nobody to back you up for that role You have been called to fulfill your calling in that place, in your neighborhood, in this church. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. Paul says, listen, God didn't stack us up 12 deep, everybody doing the same thing. He gave us different roles, different gifts. Why? So we can all come together and serve and be part of the body. So nobody's sitting on the sidelines, right? Cheering everybody else on. woo woo! good job today. I hope nobody gets hurt because I'll have to get in there and watch the babies." God forbid, they'll put me on the prayer team. Whoosh. so glad I'm second string. God says, no, 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 it's A team first string. How do I know if I'm on that team? Are you saved? Have you trusted in Christ as your savior? Have you been reconciled to God? Because if so, you are now a minister of reconciliation. You've been approved, you've been entrusted, past tense. And what Paul does next is he Blows up some fallen human nature default mode things that we do, like people pleasing and using words of flattery to get people to like us. Look at what he says next in the rest of verse 4. So just, just so we don't miss the power of these three words. Real quick, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Listen, my boldness in the midst of conflict was not based on a false gospel or false motives. The beginning of verse 4, he says what? It's based on this truth that I've been approved by God and have been entrusted with the gospel. And then these next three words, so we speak. Why do you speak so boldly for Christ, Paul? It's right here. This is why we speak. Rather than remaining silent or shrinking back in fear, so we speak. Not to please man. being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I love those eight verses from Paul. Without verses like this in the Bible, I'm tempted to see Paul as the super spiritual superstar, right? First string, Without verses like this, I'm tempted to look at pastors of big churches or these missionaries off in the mission field doing great things and think, man, I hope one day I get promoted. But verses like this, Paul says to the church, to you, to me as Christians listen, you're 18 first string. You've already been approved and you've already been entrusted. Now suit up and let's go. Paul blows apart this idea of people-pleasing. He says it right there. We, weren't, we didn't come to you with a, an attempt to please people. What is people-pleasing? That's living your life based on the expectations of others, what you think they want you to do, making your decisions based on what you think others want you to do rather than what God says is wise and righteous. Righteous. He says, I didn't come to you with words of flattery. What is that? That's saying what people want to hear to get what you want from them, to make them like you, to make them see you as worthy so you say what they want to hear. Paul said, that's not what we do as Christians. We speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth is loving as long as you're not being a jerk about it, right? Being gentle about it, like he said, like a nursing mother. And the last thing he says is, well, we didn't do this for the glory of people, we weren't, doing, we weren't seeking the applause of man. What does that mean? That's allowing your motive to be, right? I'm gonna do this so that I can get that, an accolade, an attaboy, a, a good job, a, applause. Paul says, we don't live that way. It's not why we do ministry. It's not why we're bold in the midst of much conflict. You wanna know why we're bold in the midst of much conflict? It has nothing to do with your applause. What you think of me has everything to do with this truth, Through the gospel, we have been entrusted, and we have been approved, and it's all past tense. It's done. So for those of us, me, who struggle with people-pleasing and finding our value and worth in other people's expectations, we need to hear this gospel truth again and again and again, don't we? Jesus has already done enough to earn our approval and secure our calling we've been approved by the gospel and entrusted with the gospel we are no longer shackled to what others think of us as people pleasers we're no longer motivated uh, by the expectations and opinions of others in order to gain their applause or approval instead we can live as those who have already been approved as God's children we can live as those who have been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel and live our lives boldly for Jesus as a 18 first string. In your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your home. You, you've been called to your calling in life and you are the one God has called to, to be the minister of reconciliation wherever you are. Dads, moms, husbands, wives, students. You know, there's a, I'm going to end with this. As a pastor, oftentimes I'm, I'm asked this question: How do you know when it's the Holy Spirit speaking? How do you know? How do you recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit? Now, my typical response is: Hey, listen, it's it's a journey. It's building a relationship. That's like coming to me and saying, "How do I recognize my wife's voice, bro?" If that's your question, you're already doing something wrong, right? Because you know your wife's voice because you hear it and you walk with her, you live with her, you pursue her, you study her. That's how you know you I can't fix that for you. If that's the question you're asking, you're in trouble. Now, apply that to our relationship with God. We get to know the voice of the Holy Spirit over time as we walk with him, as we read his word and we begin to, to learn what his voice sounds like and the kinds of things he says to us through the Bible and we begin to hear and understand and recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a second issue, though, that I think needs to be talked about here. Another reason why we struggle to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit is because we turn up the volume on the voices of others. That's what it means to be a people pleaser. You're turning up the volume of what people think about you. That's what it means to to seek the applause of man. You're turning up the volume on the voices and the opinions of other people and their expectations for you such that it begins to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, how do you recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit? One, you've got to turn down the volume on all the other voices. Number two, you spend time with him. You get to know him. You get to know the kinds of things he says through his word. Now, I'm going to end here, and we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to hear um, a little bit of uh, Jeff Rathbun, our international missionary, pastor, a little bit of his story. And, I, and I'm, I'm so glad that he was willing to share some with us, because I think we do have this misconception about missionaries, right? God's called them to go to tough places. So they never get tired, they never get frustrated, they never get homesick, right? There's all these false ideas, and, and, and I'm so excited if you get to hear a little bit of Jeff's story. But uh, before we do that, I want to pray for us, and then when the um, video's done, our prayer partners are going to be at the front of the room and at the back of the room, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen to me, church, and you've not come to that place where you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus and that alone for your approval, I'm going to encourage you to do something today would you stand when we're singing and grab one of our prayer partners and just ask them, hey could you pray with me could you tell me more about becoming a christian today maybe something else going on in, in your life last service i had the opportunity to pray with with a young lady who's got a brain tumor and it's causing her to go blind there may be just these things going on you want the church praying for you our prayer partner we're here for you we want to pray with you and it'd be our honor uh to get to do so today And then while our prayer partners are down here, our worship team will be back on the stage leading us in singing. So maybe you, like Paul and Silas at midnight in a Philippian jail, just want to stand and worship God and sing boldly. I'm going to encourage you to do that as well. Let's pray, and then we'll listen to Jeff's story. Um, Father, thank you for uh, this truth today, God, this reminder that our value, our worth, our approval is not found in, God, it's not found in the opinions or expectations of man. God, thank you that you, through the Holy Spirit, led Paul to stop and to write these eight verses to, to, to reveal that his, his motive for boldly proclaiming the gospel in the midst of conflict didn't come from uh, his own strength or, or trying to impress anybody, but it came to him through this belief and trust in the gospel that through the work of Jesus, he had already been approved and he had already been entrusted. God, I pray you would forgive us right now, especially those of us who see ourselves as B-team or second-string Christians just watching everybody else engage in ministry. And God, would you forgive us of that, that today we could see more clearly that you've called every one of us the life journey that we are on to be ministers of the gospel for you. God, that's big time. Father, now as we listen to Jeff's story, I pray you would speak and encourage us, and God, do a work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Hi, my name is Jeff Rathbun. I am the international mission pastor here at Solid Rock, and my family and I have been serving overseas in the Philippines uh, for over a year. So, I got saved when I was about fourteen or so. Um, I remember it was just really long process during my eighth grade year. I had a really good friend who was a Christian, and and he would always share the gospel with me. He would always be talking to me about church. And it it seems like within a year, I felt that God was calling me into the ministry and into mission work. And so from um, junior high up until now, I've felt this very strong desire to serve God's church through missions. But being a a junior high and high school student who has surrendered himself to ministry, it, it, it felt like suddenly there were a lot of expectations that were, that were placed on me. Um, not only was there the expectation of being a good Christian, of being someone who read his Bible faithfully, who prayed faithfully, who, who did the right things, who said the right things, who acted the right way, um, but then there was the added expectation of, well, you say you're a minister, you say you want to be a minister, so you need to act like that. You need to, to walk and talk like uh, a, good, a good minister does. As, as I grew in faith and as I grew um, in my understanding of what God wanted me to do, it, it felt like there were, there were other expectations that, were, that I noticed But these expectations weren't always ones that people put on me. They're expectations that I developed and put on myself. And um, that that grew from my recognition that international mission work is what I need to be about. And international mission work is what my family is going to be about. And that became an expectation of what I'm supposed to be acting and living like an international missionary. And that means that I'm supposed to be sort of, you know, fearless and sort of, um, you know, being able to withstand a lot of different, difficult things and not give up, not feel burnt out, not feel tired of, of ministry, not feel tired of dealing with people and uh, their sins and, and dealing with my sins. And these expectations just kept growing. Our first year actually in the Philippines, it, it, everything just boiled over. It seemed like um, we experienced culture shock, and it was it was hard because we felt like we couldn't admit that we were struggling uh, because we had placed this expectation on ourselves that missionaries don't don't struggle, and we knew that wasn't true, but it was still an expectation that we had put on ourselves. It was still like we don't have problems, we don't have struggles, we don't have issues. We have sin, obviously, but we're we're good Christians. We're um, we're missionaries. We're we're ministers. This is this is what we do. We don't have problems. And then in October of 2017, we found out that Holly was pregnant um, with our fourth child, uh, and. She got severely uh, ill because of morning sickness, and we we were just we were just beaten, we were beaten down, we were tired, and we wondered a lot if this was if that was where we needed to be, if the philippines and and ministry ministry and mission work was what God had really called us to, um, because we just felt like we. We could not go on like that. And we had a, a video call with the elders and they noticed that we looked pretty rough. Um, we looked really just beaten up and ragged. And in, in their love for us, they, they offered to bring us back to the States uh, for some rest. And when we first heard it, we, we both Holly and I we started crying um, because it it was what we needed during this time here in the states. God really has tried to point us point to us that you know these expectations and these standards that we've put on ourselves are not healthy and they're not uh, helpful. They're not fruitful. They're not biblical. Um, because they're not; those expectations aren't aren't in the Bible. It's not what God expects of us. He wants us to um, be open and transparent with each other about our issues and our struggles. Because that's how we grow in grace with one another. Uh, and if we weren't doing that, then we were closing ourselves off from community by ignoring the fact that we had issues that we needed to deal with, um, with our, with the culture that we had, that we had attempted to adopt in the Philippines or the culture of, um, American Christianity and how there was that clash sometimes and, and just the tensions that we were trying to reconcile with and then the work that we were doing and then, um, transitioning our family, everything was just building up and we didn't know how to deal with it, and we weren't dealing with it well, we've learned that God God has taken care of us, God has shown us mercy, and He's brought us to a different place where we've learned to exercise faith in Him, not according to expectations or standards that we put on ourselves, or expectations or standards that others put upon us, but we answer to, to God, we answer to Him, And uh, we have faith that he's called us to, to do this work, to take care of our family, and to do it with wisdom.